Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Knocked Conscious. Today I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Wesley Ingram. He's been in and around the petroleum industry for 15 years. We talked about climate change, the climate agenda, a bunch of other topics. It was a great conversation. I think we're going to have a few more. Here it is. I hope you enjoy it. PhD, 15 years in the petroleum industry from what I hear. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And after that, that's about as far as I can get in your bio, sir, because it's got all these words in it. So... I'd love for you to fill in and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and like what what kind of quest are you on? Sure. Yeah, I can go into uh, just background history and uh, how I got where I am. That's a good start. Uh, so basically, I went into college like not even quite sure what I was going to do, um, but I took my first geology class and I was basically hooked. And so I was a undergrad. Uh, geology major in physical geography, which is basically like modern geology, looking at landforms and weather and climate, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I didn't stop from there. I went, I went all the way through, got my undergrad, then I went down to Florida State, got my master's, and um, there I got kind of linked into the oil industry. I did a little bit of offshore oil work for uh, what they call uh, micropaleo prep, which is basically where they take these sediments that come from deep below the seabed and you prepare them to look at microfossils, which you can actually use to age date the sediments going back through time. And they need to know that as they're drilling down offshore because they don't have a lot of well control way out there. And so micropaleo is one of the few ways to do that. But anyway, that's what I did for my master's. And, and especially during my master's as an early grad student, I discovered that I was quite interested in paleoclimate uh, and geochemistry, uh, deep time processes that affected the earth. I mean, it was wild to me learning and uh, as a master's student that, you know, the earth was almost a, a snowball uh, six, 700 million years ago. We went through all these different ice ages and warm periods and cold periods. And, and I just thought that was really interesting and wanted to learn more about it. And so then I went up to uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and that's where I did my uh, PhD. And that was actually a marine science oceanography department. Even though it was Chapel Hill, they had a marine science lab down on the coast there. And uh, they did geochemistry, biogeochemistry, geological oceanography, all that stuff. And so I basically did that for my PhD. And um, specifically, I studied um, gas hydrates in the Gulf of Mexico. And what these are, if you haven't heard of these things, they are actually uh, frozen methane gas surrounded by a cage of water molecules and they they can happen in the far north tundra where it gets cold enough basically you need uh, very cold temperatures where you need uh, a combination of cold temperatures and higher pressure and natural gas will actually form these blue ice crystal looking things and they'll burn and uh, so it's a it's actually a huge uh, resource in the shallow geosphere uh, total amount of natural gas in in the earth and so similar to like akin to like trapped carbon it would be like trapped energy right trapped petroleum yeah. product basically yeah they're yeah they're in the natural gas form so um they're mostly methane i would say 80 90 percent of them are methane meth they call them clathrates because they're in that frozen solid state uh but as soon as you they, they core them, they try to bring them up to the surface. As soon as they lose that pressure and temperature, they dissociate into, into gas. It's mostly right. methane. Makes total sense. 
yeah, it's mostly methane, but uh, you can get uh, ethane and propane class rates uh, as well. Um, but from a paleoclimate perspective, uh, back in the 90s and even the 2000s, there was quite a bit of interest in these things because there were, uh, there were large perturbations in the carbon cycle that was recorded in, in geologic records. And a lot of people theorized and thought, well, maybe it was these methane hydrates becoming destabilized and, and sending a lot of methane natural, naturally through the ocean, into the oceans and into the atmosphere. Um, and that was just one uh, theory at the time. Um, so that was kind of the thought going on in the, in the 2000s. And I was actually, in, uh, I was doing that during the 2000s. That, that's when I was in my PhD program. And so uh, University of North Carolina actually had a uh, consortium where they were studying this offshore, this large methane hydrate field in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. And so I said, well, if the big question is whether these things are stable or not, I as geologists can can look at that. And so I collected a bunch of cores, did multiple cross sections across this field, and uh, basically analyzed the sediments, dated them, and uh, said, well, is there any evidence of, you know, calving, destabilizing the slope of this methane hydrate field, at least this particular one, has it remained stable or has it erupted and caused a bunch of disturbance on the seafloor? Long and short of it was, um, no, it uh, evidence for that. It was more of a um, basically just pushing up underneath. A, there was a salt diaper underneath it, which if you know what those are, they're big welds of salt that uh, it's actually wild. If you look at the seafloor, a bathymetric image, the seafloor of Gulf of Mexico, it looks like all these little pock marks and hummocky looking things. And that's because it's a salt basin. Uh, there's There's deep salt that was buried and salt flows and moves uh, when it's when it's buried and under great depth. And so these things literally come up like a like a diaper, and up on top of them, you you create these pathways for gas, natural gas, and oil to migrate all the way up to the seafloor. And then yeah. that's the source of the oil. And then you get all the methane cycling, and you get the hydrates forming right around the seafloor. And so I I discovered in in my work is that at least for this site, it was pretty stable. What it did is it made a little bump on the seafloor. And so the sediments all around the field were thicker and it thinned up on the top, just as you would expect, like a little little bump. Uh, right. but, but no evidence of, of large erupting or calving or anything like that. So it wasn't the real sexy answer, but it was the right answer. Um, right. But I also noticed, aside from that, uh, that in the field of geoscientists, they that was my first learning that they really like stuff when it's sexy, if it's dramatic, if it's like, oh, you know, we're all going to die, the earth's going to blow up, like they love right. it. <laughs> <laughs> like the AI of, uh, of uh, energy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but... Anything yeah, sexy. Yeah, they, yeah. they like that. They like to scaremonger sometimes and... Uh, be real dramatic and always trying to throw in the human caused human this and it kind of started out that way and then then it got into the whole like climate thing and, and even when i was in college that was like popular at that time the whole anthropogenic that just means human caused 
climate change, all that stuff. I was not really that into it. I was like, I was doing my thing. It wasn't necessarily related to that. Uh, it, well, it was in a, in a secondary kind of way. Um, but I, I was like, whatever. I, you know, I, I noticed that it was definitely a thing and that universities were very liberal. And right around this time, getting close to finishing up, I kind of decided like, man, I can't, I can't be in academia long enough. I mean, I thought I wanted to be a research scientist and teach and be a professor and all that, but I just, I, I got towards the end. I was like, I got to get out. These people are in a freaking bubble and they just yeah. they've never had, most of them never had real jobs out, outside of academia. And so yeah. I went and took an internship and then I, then I went and worked uh, for an oil company doing offshore uh exploration stuff like that uh, which kind of fit because my phd was looking at deep sea sediments in the gulf of mexico so it was rather fitting i, I went and worked for a uh, it was actually on the continental shelf they break it apart the shelf and then the deep water uh, but i worked with a shelf exploration team uh, for the in the gulf of mexico and then basically after taking that internship that launched me into uh, that career because it was so cool, like coming into that uh, with an internship. Because basically, when you're in academia too, you have to kind of like uh, fight, and get all your get what little money you can get, and cobble together what data you can get. Then when I went to go work with this oil company, it was like, here you go. Here's a size right. that cost you know twenty million dollars to acquire. Here we haven't had a chance to anyone interpret it yet. Why don't you interpret it? Oh, and by the way, here's well data from like all this other stuff and background work that's been done, micro paleo. I was like, man, you guys are swimming in data and information. Like, this is cool. Uh, Interesting. So, uh, state, a state school uh, doesn't have the funding, but the private institution is able to fund. For that know, kind of stuff? In, in that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, when you're talking like deep water offshore oil project oh, yeah. yeah they've got they've got the data now um big university my buddy, my buddy actually went to unc as well uh for his phd in uh in uh chemistry oh wow oh cool yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good school for that too it's a great school for a phd for a doctorate i heard so wow yeah it, it kind of depends as far as like data and what schools have versus the private sector it kind of depends on what it is and what you're talking about now, when it comes to other things, universities have a lot of money, uh, and a lot of them have massive endowments. And in and University of North Carolina is no slouch. They've got they've got a bunch of money. They're a big flagship state school. Um, but when it comes to like geological data, like offshore, like yeah, the oil companies have a lot more of that. And and it all comes back to money, size of the prize. Yeah. Like the reason why well, return on investment too, right? Those exactly. ones are going to profit from the. Yeah, exactly. It's return on investment. And and I remember, you know, even coming back to when I came back from my internship and kind of talking to people about what I was working on and what I was doing. And and they were kind of asking me, some of these professors, like, well, how much do those will, uh, you know, wells cost? I mean, it's amazing. They're, they're drilling down in 5,000 feet of water and they're drilling 20,000 feet down. And they do. I mean, the in engineering of it is absolutely impressive. And they're like, man, I don't I don't understand how can they spend all that money and all those resources, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But when you do the back, back of the envelope calculation, if they hit one field that's a hundred million barrel field, we'll do the math on that. That's right. like three quarters of a billion dollars. Now you right. have to spend the money to develop it, right. drill 
appraisal wells and all that. But this, the, you're hunting in the oil industry, we call that, you're hunting elephants when you're out in the deep water. And so those r- reservoirs are quite big. Um, and it must, it, the, the pre, the, uh, I guess the data analysis prior to where to start or where to look specifically must be important too, right? Because it's like right. the preparation going into it. So if you're picking the wrong places to, to look, they're not finding it, all your yeah. analysis gets out the window for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And a dry hole in that type of situation is, that's uh, a 50 million, $100 million mistake, you know. But, you know, <laughs> I'm they sure say, it, happen- it must <laughs> happen a lot more than you you'd like to admit i can imagine oh it it does yeah i mean as technology uh, science data analysis you know the seismic surveys as that's all gotten more and more advanced through the years you could imagine number of dry wells kind of decreases uh, but there was still a lot of unknowns when they went out there into the the offshore especially the deep water in the that would have been the 90s and into the 2000s uh, and yeah they there's a lot of wells that didn't pan out, just, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100 million done. Uh, but they take that risk because they have an idea that if they know that they're out there, if they can find them, it actually moves the bottom line. Uh, but when you're talking deep water offshore, that's the big boys. Um, you know, the smaller independent oil and gas companies are not, they don't have the money to do that. They could participate. They could be like a 5% working interest. But they can't right. fund, they can't fund that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can imagine just the technology and the cost of all that operations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, but I did that for a little while, and actually, the company that I worked for they they sold a lot of their international and uh, offshore, and just about all of it. And then they took a lot of the young guys. I was included in this group, and they sent us up to uh, Oklahoma City, and uh, and then I got into onshore. Um, uh, oil and gas exploration. And also during that time, right about 2009, 2010, well, really it got going 11, 12. Um, everything started shifting towards what they called unconventionals. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about this, like the horizontal drilling. Yeah, the shale, shale. And shale the, yeah, the shale, shale revolution. That's when that really was absolutely. getting going. That was kind of the uh, early part of it. Yeah, that was a huge revolution too, the way they were able to extract all the extra energy out of each out of each piece and whatnot yeah absolutely they even reversed the decline in uh u.s oil production completely reversed it and now we're back above the 1970s peak so it's pretty amazing completely it is very interesting yeah yeah so i mean we we are one of the world's uh largest producers of oil and gas now in the world Um, and that wasn't the case just 10 years ago um so and that all came from, yeah, the unconventionals, the shale, all that. In fact, a lot of it comes right out of the Permian in West Texas. Uh, I believe three, four million barrels a day, every single day wow. comes out of that. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then I got into that and then can, then kind of stayed there uh, in the unconventional onshore. Because uh, once you get into the onshore and, and the investment got slashed after the bus, the first bus back in uh, 09, with the stock market crash, the, the GFC, all that stuff. Uh, it's hard to get back into it. Um, so for the last 10, 15 years, I've bounced around uh, onshore oil and gas, whether it's uh, an operator or um, I also went up to Colorado and worked for a service lab for a while. Uh, and that was cool because they um, they get really into like the 
details, the nitty gritty of when you take a core, getting all the information out of that, all the geochemistry. And, and since I was a, you know, geochemistry guy, you know, from my grad school, uh, I did a lot of inorganic geochemistry and was a SME for uh, the clients that want to come in and do what they call uh, uh, X-ray uh, fluorescence and then X-ray diffraction work, which is basically just trying to figure out what all the little minerals are in your rock. Uh, but that didn't used to be as big a deal in conventional, but in the unconventional world, the devils was really in the details. You really needed to know what that mix of mineralogy was in those shales and how much organic content they had as well. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. I got to, it was almost like being halfway a little bit feeling like you're in academia, academia, but still in, um, but still in the industry because you're kind right. of an expert working at a lab. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That makes it fun. Cause then you get to kind of, kind of play with both of it. You get to flirt with the scientific part. Cause it, you know, just from your path, it just sounds like you have that highly inquisitive mind and curious and always need to learn and understand and grow. So yeah, I loved it. I genuinely loved it, loved learning. Um, but yeah, more recently I decided, well, you know, I guess the last couple of years, I really felt like, all right, this this stuff's getting out of hand. This whole like climate green agenda, like people are just lying now. And so I decided I was going to start just telling the truth, like just saying what it is, like not trying to be a narrative or anything, but just, you know, let's get back to the science. Let's get back to the, the real real information and not just always right. and, and what year was that did you say uh i only recently I started doing this about a year ago okay uh, so about a year yeah it's and it's kind of yeah. seems to be like this weird trend right we're seeing like this wave slowly working its way and we're all kind of acquiescing to it for a number of years and now finally people are like all right it's like yeah. But it's like not like slow down. They're almost like it's like a strike back. Like it's exactly it's, like, it's a backlash. Yeah, it's kind of dangerous. You know, it's like it's not just slowing it down. It's like actually a retaliation to it almost. Yeah, it, it did kind of build slowly build with that with me for years because I I knew for a long time it's a bunch of BS. I mean, I always kind of suspected that, but I just didn't really worry about it. I went about my career, went about my life, and I was good. Um, and then I just saw things getting crazier and crazier. And I'm like, all right, I'm sick of the lies. I'm sick of them repeating the same like thing, like CO2. I remember laughing when I heard, either someone told me or I read, or I heard that the Obama administration uh, classified uh, carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And I remember just thinking that's, that's freaking hysterical. If it wasn't that's like funny. so sad, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we are, we are carbon based life form yeah all plants and animals the whole, the whole biosphere is, is carbon is the element of life and that's right. just well i mean look it's just rudimentary ele elementary talking if i'm a i'm a kid let's see plants give us oxygen because they take carbon dioxide so carbon dioxide is needed so we can have oxygen it's not really that crazy of science. like where is that yeah. like controversial is my question yeah uh, yeah so i i mean I saw it for a while. Like I saw that it was getting politicized, but even more so. And then just doubling down on the lies and lies. And I'm like, all right, I'm I'm so sick of this green agenda and all this stuff. And I'm just gonna talk about it. I'll just and, and a friend of mine kind of kind of got me going. He had the idea. He's like, yeah, you should do that. Do a channel. It's like call it Carbon Psyops. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is a psyop. <laughs> like, it is totally. People, carbon is bad. That is a psyop. It's BS. 
it's, <laughs> it's so, crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's how it got started. And uh, and uh, so did I've, you notice the changes happening even like within the administration? Like they were replacing certain people that were, you know, in executive positions with other people who had different ideas over time. Is that kind of how they, or did they start from like the bottom up? Did they just load the bottom with all these new kids that had this new ideology? Okay, so you're you're kind of referring to academia, like going back to. Well, I'm talking about like yeah, when you started seeing it happen around you, did it start yeah. happening at work too, within within your work, or was it happening more just outside, like from the like the government perspective? Uh, oh yeah, where I was seeing it, I was seeing it all over in the news and in the media, and just building and just getting more and more stupid and hysterical and non scientific, and uh, I would say in the oil industry. There's definitely a lot more skeptics, but you'd be surprised. There's a lot of like people that have gotten on that whole anthropogenic global warming train over there too. Even our society, which is the American Association of Petroleum Geologists, will put out articles and little white papers and little things, and they'll talk about what we can do to reduce our carbon. And you know, and it's just it's stupid. It's like, what are you guys doing? You don't represent the freaking green movement you you people that pay the dues to your society are petroleum geologists like what are you doing even supporting that uh so i i saw a little bit of it on the uh oil industry side but in academia man i can tell you and even when i was there back in the two, the 2000s all the way up until about 2008 that was when i was finishing up um there if you were conservative at all or like a normal person or just not real left i mean you just kind of i love the term normal person you're just a normal person <laughs> you're like it's weird right like if you were just like you know a normal person you're just weird you're you're extreme oh it was good god i just it's just funny hearing it like that you know it, yeah it, it was it was crazy you just learned to kind of just especially with the other grad students that and some of the professors you just didn't you just didn't talk about it you just kind of you just knew not to go there i mean 80 90 percent of the people there it seemed were very left-leaning but that could have been a deception too because there could have been a lot of people like me that they just weren't were just went about their business went about their studies and they didn't want to well, deal with that's how psychopathy works you know that's how they take it you get you get a psychopath in this position of power and the and generally people are agreeable they're generally mm -hmm. agreeable so yeah. you push to a point until they're not agreeable anymore and then they slow down and then they push some more later after some time it's this perfect equation and then five years later you're 100 yards from where you started you have no idea how you got there except for where you are and where you started are nothing. They're not even on the same planet, it seems, at times. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. What do they call that? Shifting the Overton window, right? Yeah, the Overton window, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's how they do it. And, and you don't want so, so tell us about your PSYOP. So how, how's this oh, PSYOP yeah, yeah. Uh, channel? Oh, so I got the uh, – so my friend, we were kind of just talking, going back and forth, and and he's thinks the world's gone crazy, and – and we're just talking back and forth like, yeah, I'm, maybe I'll just do a channel and just start talking about all this stuff is bullshit because it is. I mean, there's so many holes in the global warming thing, and we can get into that too, but first we'll talk about the carbon side thing. Uh, and, he, and he's like, yeah, I do that. And I'm like, yeah, maybe we'll just call it carbon psyops. And then he even had this thing where he's like, 
oh, you you could uh, you get like a cow and you get and he's a carbon cow and <laughs> he creates methane and carbon. I'm like, oh, that's great because they're even trying to say that cows are bad. Which right, you need a you need a cartoon <laughs> Beto O'Rourke chasing the cow with like a knife or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, wasn't it something about him killing cows or cow farts or some some? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they actually in um, Ireland they they wanted to kill two hundred thousand cows. Two hundred thousand over three years, right? Yeah, yeah. So just insane, and and that is a that did is, that get thwarted? Did you? So uh, that that the farmers pushed back and said that's no, what I mean. Uh, they got thwarted then, so they were able to stop yeah, it. Yeah, yeah oh, they couldn't stop it. Yeah. Because the farmers have had some victories here in Europe recently, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get there. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, they, they have, which is a good thing. Um, but yeah, the the carbon cow thing, and, and I was like, oh, well, we can do a carbon cow thing because I'm a fan of uh, Y files, where he has the little you know fish over there. So I was like, man, I need a little uh, I need a little cartoon sidekick, and so we made we made carbon cow, and I finally now got him to where he talks a little bit. But I'm just playing with that and just see where right. it goes. Um, yeah, but, I, I saw the I saw your last video, uh, the one video where you just go through the different layers and everything. And I'm just, it's beautiful to to watch, but you have to really focus on it to to get the full you know information from it. You know, yeah, it's it's a deep dive. So what I'm trying to do with my cast is I'm trying to give people the information. I don't want to dumb it dumb it down. I'm trying to give them like this is the real stuff. This is this this is the science. This is the data. This is the paleoclimate records and getting into all that and and I didn't hold back on some of the stuff about you know how carbon 14 is produced in the atmosphere and how we'd use it to date things like I I want to I want to keep it high level but I also want to keep it understandable uh and not overdo it but that's a fine line to kind of balance there um, it's very hard especially when it comes to the science part of it because when once you lose like one of the concepts you kind of start drifting away it's just it's almost impossible. So kudos to even the attempt because it is, it's a really fine line to your point of dancing. How much do you keep it entertaining? But you know, there's a dryness factor built in. So how do you, you know, make that as palatable as possible while you get the information to people? Yeah, exactly. And that's where the carbon cow kind of comes in. I want to kind of make kind of like hecklefish kind of, you know, break it up a little bit, throw some jokes in there. And, and actually carbon cow is a troll. It's actually a troll because there's nice. nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with cows. They do produce carbon, but carbon is a good thing, and it's actually a self-contained uh, system. Uh, people that that look at this, that look at the, the cattle and how the cows eat eat the grass, they create the methane. But here's the thing: here's what they don't tell you. They tell you cows are bad and they create methane, and methane is this dangerous, you know, greenhouse gas and all this stuff. And the best propaganda is based on a little bit of truth. But what they do is they conflate it and they make a real big deal out of something without putting it into a broader context. But I'm going to give you the broader context here. The cow eats the grass and then they, they actually have methanogens uh, in their gut. They have, they're called ruminants. And in their rumen, they, the bacteria will break down and create methane gas. And they will emit this gas. They'll burp it out. And, and here's the thing that they don't tell you. It goes in the atmosphere. It's only got a residence time of about eight, 10 years. It oxidizes to CO2 anyway. So that methane cannot really exist in high concentrations in the atmosphere. It just, it just can't. It's, it's basic redox chemistry. Why? Because what's the atmosphere full of? It's full of nitrogen and oxygen. You got all this oxygen around. 
And it goes through some intermediate steps, some catalysts, but ultimately that methane gets broken down into CO2. And then, then the CO2 gets in the atmosphere and then plants breathe, just like you were talking about earlier. They suck up the CO2, they create biomass. So the grass grows and then it sucks up the CO2 and then the cow comes along and munches. And eats it again. Eats, eats grass again. So it's really just a grand cycle. Yeah. And if you don't change yeah. the number of cows, like let's say you have, I, I don't know how many cows, I don't think anybody knows how many cows are on the planet, but let's say it's I couldn't lot. imagine. There's probably a lot. There's, there's probably there's a, a ton. billion or something. But if that number stays about the same, after about 10 years, it just becomes a grand cycle. And you're not, you're not really gaining or losing anything. Now, if you doubled the herd, then yeah, you double the size of the the whole cycle, but then it would still just rotate through. It would go in the air, go in the grass, grow in the cow's guts, back out again, and it's just a big cycle. So well, I'm wondering if uh, that's what they're using in this way as an excuse to your point. I st- I always think about how they manipulate, right? So the second you told me that as long as there's no additional cows added, there must have been a point where maybe in the 70s, 80s, where food became a thing where we did add cattle as beef became more pot easier to transport to more people there must have been an increase in overall beef production which then we're in the lull of it adjusting to the new beef increase versus it actually being a problem it's just having to adapt and then become its cycle yeah you know again i don't know how many cows are on the planet but i i would guess you're probably exactly right uh, because there's more people on the planet now than there was 30 years ago and so beef production, yeah, would would increase. Um, so that would add, that would even that would just justify their numbers to use against, you know what I mean? To to push their side of it, right? Once right. Again. But but when I started digging into all this stuff, I mean, I already kind of knew that all the the science side of it, the global warming and alarmism, I knew that that was BS. But as I dug into this stuff and started doing my casts, I, I learned that there's no doubt about it. This is an anti-human globalist agenda. All you have to do is go back and read the documents, look at the Club of Rome, look at the UN documents, and they even say it on camera, oh, we've got too many people, we've got to reduce this, that, and the other. It should not be considered conspiracy anymore. And it's not to anyone that does any bit of research to look into it, that these people clearly are Malthusian. You know, you know, you know that term, Malthusian, right? Yes. Thomas sir. Malthus. Yeah. Uh, so that's just, just what they are. There's no, there's no denying that when you read their literature and see what they say they're consciously evil yeah yeah and so they think there's too many people and uh, they basically decided back in um, the 1972 club of rome report limits to growth and here here's the here's the psyop here's the trick there's a lot of useful idiots that work towards this green agenda that may actually be true believers but i think the high level globalist i think they know damn well that it's a bunch of BS. And they basically needed a global existential threat to scare people to say, oh, look, we're all gonna, we're all gonna die because it's not about the CO2, it's not about the global warming. I think the higher level, the smart ones, I mean, Klaus Schwab is a PhD, he's an evil genius, but, but he's a smart dude. I think he's, he's a brilliant a, evil genius, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I, I think they know that the whole green thing, CO2, that that's BS. But if you read the limits to growth reports, which I went through, I did a cast on it, uh, their, their concern is regular people getting too high a standard of living and consuming all the resources. 
Now, there is some truth to um, using using up some resources on a rapid pace without switching to other things and without bringing in new technologies, new innovations, and things like that. Um, but their charts, their analysis is extremely pessimistic. Uh, and their prognostications of the future, which were done back in the 70s, have all turned out to be wrong. Uh, but they ba they basically said that human population gets gets too high, consumption of metals and resources collapses down, causes industrial capacity to come down, too many people causes too much pollution, degradation of land, you know, farming goes down, and then basically you have a collapse of population back down. Uh, now these doomsdayers, they're kind of like financial doomsdayers. They just keep saying it and updating their prognostications. They say, okay, well, maybe we weren't right 10 years ago, but we're going to be it's right. eight years. They keep pushing it out in the, into the future. But it's my belief that uh, these higher level, the more intelligent globalists, they know that this whole CO2 global warming thing is a bunch of BS. They just don't want... Uh, people consuming all the resources. And, and there is some truth to that, you know, resources are finite on human time scales, meaning that if, if we reach 20 billion population, for example, and everybody everywhere was, was living a high middle-class lifestyle, you, you would go through, you would go through the oil reserves, but that is so, that is so far out. That's, you know, people have even argued for peak oil back in the 70s. And the thing about peak oil is, is Hubbard, the guy that first predict, predicted it, he was correct. We did hit the conventional peak in 1970 and we came back down. Um, so a lot of the shallow, large, easy to find fields, the cheap oil, I call it the cheap oil, that has been discovered and, and that is that has been produced and used up over time. That doesn't mean that there's a, there's a ton more oil out there. There's huge volumes of oil still out there, but you have to spend more money. You have to go out in deeper water. Maybe you got to go to the Arctic. Uh, you can even get it from unconventionals, but it's more expensive to get it on the cost per barrel uh, basis. And so there is some truth to burning through uh, Earth's resources because there is only a certain amount. Now, the Earth does continually make more oil and metals and all these things, but it does it on millions of years timescales. It doesn't doesn't do it on human timescales. Um, but they're they're so pessimistic and Malthusian about it, these globalists in their reports, they don't consider human innovation. They they don't consider new technologies. Uh, they don't consider new efficiencies. And so all their reports are conveniently extremely pessimistic because it's the answer they want. Oh, there's too many people. Oh, we're using up all the resources. We got to get rid of people. And so that's how their whole mind or consciousness has gone. And if your mind goes down the Malthusian road, you're going to start to see people, humans themselves, the population as the problem. But for me, that's the complete wrong way to look at the world. It's a, ter it's a terrible worldview. Um, yes, we are going through resources. Yes, we need to be more efficient. Yes, we need to switch to new energy sources. I'm, I'm all. And we for definitely need to be cleaner and be better, be more streamlined and efficient. Like we, we do waste a lot, and we do have a pollution. There, those Absolutely. are true things that are, that exist for sure. Yeah, but it takes a, um, it takes one. You acknowledge it, and you say, okay, how do we solve these problems? The answer isn't 
oh, we need to depopulate. That's just that's terrible. That's, a, that's well, a, and, a, and not to implement extremely expensive new technologies that we don't know their sustainability, the return on investment, or anything yet. We don't we don't have that information. You don't just jump to that technology. You slowly implement, and it's like yeah. it feels like they they skip three or four steps. Yeah, yeah. They just they just want to go there. They just want to push the green agenda. Uh, and that's what I think it is. I think they're trying to accelerate it to the population decline. So yeah. it's my opinion with the farming, with the jump to the extreme, uh, you know, the the new uh, solar wind, you know, all the just the new uh, energy sources. And then there, what is Greta Thunberg doing? She's <laughs> she's supporting a war. Yeah. I mean, if you're an environmentalist, the one I I bet like one thing you wouldn't support would be war because it's just. Right. It's just dirt and disgust yeah. and and the caustic materials and all the metals and all just the everything. I can't even imagine. Yet it's it's the reduction of the population. I, I read an article that was it the Atlantic had it. Congo war in Congo has been good for the climate. So they're telling oh, us that's that sick. that less people, you know, is is a is better for the world. Yeah. And then yeah. they had one in Europe that in England, the UK was breathing. We're contributing to meth, you know, with our ex, with our exhaling. It's like, yeah, we always have. When did this become a new? Like, how did this become a new thing? Right. So, yeah, these that's the agenda part, right? Like, there, there's like a climate thing, and then there's the agenda part. So yeah. the agenda part's the part that seems to be way off the rails. Oh yeah, I mean the climate thing is too. I mean it. It's well, to an to an extent for sure, right? It's demonstrably. Um, False, like to that extent, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, if if you're gonna be like a fair like scientist about it, you know, you know the CO two is increasing. It does have a small, very small, weak warming effect, uh, and in fact, it's probably five percent of the total. It's so small when you start looking at absorption bands and things like that, and and the run of sensitivity of like. Okay, what is what happens when you double or triple CO two? What's the actual radiated trapping effect from doing that? It's it's really small. Like I said earlier, some of the best propaganda is best on a is based on a little bit of truth, but then they conflate it and then they just make it so dramatic. And a lot of these really global warming alarmist models are based on uh, what they do to get the dramatic result. Is they use runaway feedbacks. They say, oh, okay, well, we're going to get a slight warming of a half degree, and then that's going to cause all this water vapor, and then that's going to cause more warming, and it just doesn't work that way. The Earth system is, um, your system has a lot more negative than it does positive feedbacks, meaning if you perturb the system, it, it has a tendency to want to balance itself out and come back into an equilibrium. That's just the way, that's just the way it works, both on shorter and longer timescales. Uh, so, yeah, the whole CO2 thing in the global warming, that is definitely a grift, but it but they're careful about it. Like they they know how to, like, say things that are true and then let people make an erroneous connection that, oh, this is really bad and don't give them any of the broader context. A great example of that is they'll show the graph of like the CO2 and the temperature and the ice core record and they'll line right up and they are, they are correlated and then they'll show the. The increase from recent, you know, from humans right. and other things that goes outside of that variability, and they'll let you make that connection. Oh my gosh, look at all this extra CO2. You know, you, we're going to warm. Well, what they don't tell you is that if you look at those curves carefully and you line them up, the CO2 lags behind the temperature. 
not in front. So it's not forcing anything. It's responding to glacial interglacial conditions. And so it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, so I kind of feel like because I know something about it that I really, I should speak about it. I should do this channel. I should go on podcasts. I should tell people the real data and the information and the context uh, because they're not getting that. Um, they're just being told a narrative. And you're, and you're 100% right. It goes into the whole green agenda uh, narrative. And that was kind of the more recently in the last few years. That was more of the connection that I made. I've always known as a geoscientist, someone that knew a lot about this, I always knew it was kind of like alarmist and BS. Like I said, I wasn't really, I didn't get too into it until more recently. But then I started studying and reading about this green agenda stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, these people like really just want to get rid of people. And they're using this as the pretext for that to say, oh, you're bad. You create CO2. There's too many people. You know, oh, we got to get rid of, you know, and they're careful about it. They, they try not to come right out and say it. But now you're saying like with the Congo thing, they are coming out admitting admitting it. They literally people. are. Yeah, it was actually the UK. I mean, that was bad enough. And it's funny because the Atlantic changed the article. I'll send you the link. But basically, if you look, the initial article still locked in like an old web article with the like the actual headline. And then they change it to, oh, it's a little tricky. Oh, it's a tricky situation that war isn't always, you know, it sounds bad, but it's like a tricky thing that it it actually has some okay. You're like, what are you talking about? What? Well, no, no. Insane. Yeah, insane. It's, it's insanity. And I think they're actually just exacerbating it more for the control part. I mean, I'm obviously to your point, the resources may have been what they were fearing first, but they're like, you know what? The less people, the easier we can get a corral around them. So that's true. Let's 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 escalate that. Let's kill a half a million Ukrainians. Let's kill a couple hundred thousand Russians. Let's uh, you know, there's no more birth rate there in that country at all. So that's going to absolutely collapse. Then we've got Africa and what's going on there. Yeah, sure. Libya, you know, whatever. It's like I just sit there and it just watching this happen and my dad was one of these early adopters my dad was always a contrarian and in 1980s he had that new world order triangle uh you know with the little eye oh, yeah. pyramid book, yeah. all that stuff and he was just telling and you're like what are you talking about and then the first thing was said you know in the news you're like huh you know like the just the littlest the littlest thing and now we're literally at humans breathing are causing global warming and it's like yeah. yeah that's the step that's where we really have come far you know yeah yeah and, and that's and that's where they're going um uh, you know Den- dennis meadows one, the guy that helped write that uh limits to growth report he'll, he'll say right on camera on interviews in front of people he said well he says it like this he says well the planet <laughs> it's, it's so crazy planet can only have about a billion maybe two people well we have to get back down to that point. And if we don't get back to that, then we have to have a really strong dictatorship. Now, the word for that is technocracy. And so he's talking about basically enslaving humanity unless we can get back down to one or two billion people. And these people, and you can tell when he's talking and giving this interview, he 100% believes it. I mean, oh, yeah. He believes watching Klaus, watching Klaus Schwab talk or uh, Klaus Schwab talk about the predictive and then the elect not needing elections anymore because it goes from prescriptive to predictive. It's like, you're, oh, yeah, that's right. You're going to you're going to guess what who I'm going to vote for. That's right. So I guess I don't have to vote. I guess, I guess you're just going to tell me. It's like, yeah. yeah, these, these, these guys people, are unbelievable. 
They are they are control freaks. They they are they are psychopaths. A lot of them. Oh, you've heard of the. Uh, I'm not a psychology person, but I've heard of the the dark triad. You, you heard of that? It's mm-hmm. the it's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. narcissism probably. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I would say a lot of those guys, Klaus Schwab, I mean Noah Harari with all the transhumanism. Oh yeah, total freak. But they're they're so into them into themselves, into themselves and their ideology, and they think that other people and other human beings are like like nothing that we need to get rid of them. That is, yeah, the useless class. Now, what what do we go from the working class to the yeah the useless class? I think is what Harari called us. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because I remember when Sapiens came out, and my I think my girlfriend at the time got it for me as an audiobook, like as a gift, and I was like, oh my gosh, because I heard so many things about it. I, that book was amazing. It was absolutely um, extremely well written book. I had I, no I, idea that that guy was going to be like that. That was his outcome from what he wrote, was writing. Would never uh, have guessed his ideology was like that. I would have guessed completely different. You know? Really? Wow. Well, I, I just thought it was a really well written book. Is that, that was Homeus Day or something? Or uh, Well, Homo Deus was the second one. Deus, and yeah. that's when he started going, right. And then it was like something for the 21st century. Some Then he started getting into the technocracy. But Sapiens was like a, just the initial growth of humanity and how we became a slave oh, nice. to like wheat, for example, when we wanted wheat to free us. But we actually ended up having to take care of it more than it was taking care of us. You know, stuff like that. Gotcha. So okay. I actually do recommend that book for its information but after the after the first one it gets a little see i've I've thought about reading some of the globalist stuff like i thought about well maybe maybe i want to buy and read klaus schwab's book and i'm like nah screw him i'm not i'm not giving him (laughs) read his crap well that's the thing if i do anything it'd be through like public (laughs) library but i do like to listen to other stuff like even on x i will follow people i think i follow the krasensteins i'm not gonna lie why not to troll not to anything just to see what craziness is out there like what or no not even that there might be a good point there might be something i completely missed you know what i mean to be completely honest i might have my blinders on too so we need we we need to have free speech we need to have more information out there and this whole thing about like suppression and censorship that's killing us totally it's killing us it's not allowing us to filter the real information for ourselves yeah 100 percent yeah, I just uh, I just couldn't mentally bring myself around to. Yeah, I don't think I can read Klaus. He's just no. bad. But I did imagine he read. Imagine audiobook with him. He's like, and then we ran into the field, and then I ran into her arms and I kissed her deeply, and she liked it. Like, like, Good. imagine him doing like a one of those like smutty romance books. Oh yeah, that'd be hilarious. Um, but yeah, anyway, he's, so he's an <laughs> but yeah, I was gonna say, uh, I, I do read, uh, I, I did read Quigley's books though, and he's he's a really good intellectual, you, you know, about Carol Quigley, right? Uh, Anglo American, yeah, Carol Quigley, uh, yeah. Now that those are good because he's like a legit, uh, historian, you know, Western civilization talks about the banking cartel and how that's all woven into the, both world wars and goes into the whole history of it. And apparently his second book, Anglo-American Establishment, got kind of shadow banned even back then because the globalists didn't really – weren't really that concerned of things getting out. They had, they had pretty monopolistic control over the media back in the 80s and 90s and all that. But when his book first came out, like in the 70s, uh, I think they kind of like shadow banned it for a while. Like they, it wasn't put anywhere. People wouldn't talk about it. 
he was really upset by that. And one of his main things is that he talked about in his interviews is he was actually for the Anglo-American establishment. Now, I think the Anglo-American establishment, the old guard, is a little bit different than this new Davos thing. They're even crazier with the transhumanists and all that. Uh, so I think he was more of an old school globalist. Uh, but he he believed in the supremacy of the Anglo-American establishment, the American experiment, British law, the British empire. Uh, he believed that that should be kind of a global order for for the world. So that kind of old school new world new world order. Uh, but he also. Well, I think is there a difference though? Is it compelled or is it chosen? Right. I mean, that's the difference. It's like it's one thing to have this we're supposed to be this beacon of the example right and people should be living up to the example but we shouldn't be forcing our right. example upon others look how well that's worked out in the middle east for 25 years you know what I that mean? was like, actually one of his points that was exactly one of his points is that uh he said why are you guys being secretive about this you know why are you having all these Bilderberg meetings and all this stuff and you know Put it out in the open. Talk about it. And that's what he did with publishing these books. Is he, he felt that this history, this manipulation of banking and financial elites of the world, and even subverting democratic governments, he thought that that should be talked about. And in his book, he even talks about, like, very matter-of-factly, just like, oh, yeah, we're, people think they live in a democracy, but not really. They're, they're, right. they're very powerful money interests that actually control through the primary process and a lot of the candidates that you get. Um, so he just talks about it like, oh, yeah, this is just the way it is. And the way I'm reading through his book, it's very matter of fact. It's and that's why I have to listen to people you don't always agree with, because sometimes they tell you yeah. stuff. Like, what yeah. was the one thing I heard, the craziest thing? Uh, uh, Gad Saad. Something about he he's actually a Mossad agent. You're like, what? Cool. He wrote in his book, and some guy called him out on his interview. He goes, you know, a lot of people don't talk about that. And he talks about his time as a Mossad agent. Like, wait, I don't think you were – like, I don't think you are once a Mossad agent. I think you always yeah, will be a Mossad a agent. But it's funny that, like, that was able to come out, and you're like, he just said the quiet part out loud. And sometimes yeah. they do. And that's why you need to listen to these people because they're going to tell you sometimes exactly what they want to do to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And and that's why I like uh, reading that book and and other ones. I'll read some of their documents. Uh, Henry Lamb was a great early guy back in the 80s and 90s to help expose a lot of the stuff that the globalists were doing through the UN. And so, yeah, you, you had a lot of these guys early on that just said, started listening to him. And, and Henry Lamb, the story goes that, uh, you know, he noticed that all these people were getting all ingratiated, getting all this money and staying in the nicest hotels and going to these fancy meetings in Switzerland, even back then, it wasn't Davos then, but it was like Bilderberg and um, a couple right. other ones. And, uh, and he was like, what is going on here? Who, who are these people and what are they talking about? And so he kind of threw a shoestring budget and just got his way into there. Yeah, he didn't get into the inner, inner circles, but he kind of got into some of these meetings got to hear what they were talking about. And after he got enough information, he kind of then went on a tour and just kind of like telling people like, hey, this is what they want to do. They want to bring down the United States. They want to, you know, they want to reduce population. They want to, they, they think there's too many people. They want to crowd them into cities. And he's just telling you. And he's like, look, I spent years 
because I suspected something was up. And I went to these meetings and, and this is what they talk about. And so some of these people early on, back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, there wasn't enough of that. It didn't reach critical mass. And so they could kind of be like pushed off like, oh, conspiracy theory. Oh, you know, they're crazy people. Right. Don't listen to them. But something's happened now recently. I do believe consciousness is shifting. You still have tons of people that are going to just believe whatever the TV says. And I feel sorry for them, but that is what it is. And you're still going to have, you know, 20, 30% or more people like that. But I do believe that the number of people like noticing the inconsistencies at minimum is growing. Uh, it's just a sense, just the feeling that I have. Um, you know, I think Elon and X is helping. I mean, there's a lot of things happening right now where I feel like the controllers are losing control. They're losing control in there, yeah. losing control of a lot of things. You, you I feel like they're starting to white knuckle a little bit, like tighten their fist. Like you can feel them trying to tighten to try to hold on. And you're not sure if they're going to be able to hold it or if it's going to slip through. Kind of like that slip through your fingers kind of thing with that group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I don't know if you listen to or follow Tom Luongo, but he, he talks about these people. The, he, he calls them Straussians. And, and there's an interesting history to that term. But anyway, he talks about that squeezing, squeezing, trying to maintain control. And he says his basic thesis or one of his theses is that, that these people aren't that smart. That at least, okay, the top level might be, but then the people, their lieutenants and people that carry out their orders and try to maintain this control, they're not necessarily the smartest people. No, and, they're the drones. I mean, they're literally the dumb ones who just yep. take the, they're order takers. I mean, literally. Yep. But the people who were at the top are well-resourced and pretty smart. Yeah, and yeah, they're smart. That's the challenge. But his thesis is they're, they're, they're losing their grip. They're losing the grip of the narrative. But he says that concerns him. He says that concerns him because these people still have a lot of power, money, and influence. And he said, what are they going to do? It's like you're losing a chess match, right? But you're a narcissistic psychopath. What do they do? Instead of you losing, go kamikaze mode. They, flip the, they flip the board over or they, they do something crazy. And that's what concerns me going into this year and next year. Um, I think the globalists are losing on some level, but I also – I don't doubt for a minute they might try to pull something – crazy take someone out i sense uh yeah i sense something too yeah attack um yeah i I sense it's an event like an event that's gonna happen that oh what a shock this thing came out of nowhere we had no clue it was gonna happen and now we must all band together to go after x y and z to make sure that it will never happen again yep not heard that one about 30 times in my life i know right it's Uh, like the broken record i mean it's and that's the thing like look I, i come from I was 16 when uh, Kuwait happened. So, you know, I had a Saddam Hussein, this, hey, Saddam, this Scuds for you t-shirt growing up. Like, it was like, I was a, I enlisted in the military. I just failed the physical at the at the end. Like, I was all in with America. Oh, you're going to go. Now I'm looking back at this. And I'm still about America because I'm a first generation American. My mom came from East Germany. They escaped East Germany. This is not like, I'm lucky to be here. Like, I my grandfather was a soldier in the German army in 1944. Think about who, wow. what he was and what he was. My father yeah. had a father who was a civilian who had to register in that party because that's what you did. It's not like you had yeah. a choice. I mean, come on, let's not kid ourselves. It's not like 
once again, the banality evil, right? That's where we're at, right? We got fighters like you and I, and then you've got people who let it happen, right? And then it's too late before. And that and that's what happens. So I come from a place that I understand like all where what communism is, what this that this is the best system of what it is. That said, it's open for criticism and yeah. it's open to be better. And we're making poor choices and we can yeah. make better choices. That's all that's all it is. Yeah, it's 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 the best of uh the systems that we have available. I mean, yeah. I mean, people always want to break it down into a capitalist versus communist thing, but it's like, hey, wait a minute. Like, first of all, America, you can't even really say that we're totally market economy, totally capitalist anyway. There's a lot of crony capitalism. Regulation. Yeah, yeah. overregulation. There, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word, uh, subsidizing and uh, backstopping the, the very wealthy elite billionaire class because they're in bed with the government. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is a corporatocracy. Let's not kid ourselves. It's yeah. funny because like I, growing up, I thought regulations were for safety and whatever. But now you find out that the rich companies that have that have the means to afford the regulations then want to implement regulations so that new people can't get in the market. Yep. How crazy is that? That doesn't that yeah. sounds like the exact opposite of the reason that you'd want a regulation. You know? Yeah. Hundred percent, and and that is the antithesis of uh, of a market capitalist economy. And so, when these young people want to rail against this, or they think they're communist or whatever, I I, I almost, I mean, I love how uh, Liberty, Liberty Bunny Miranda will fight with these people, but it's hard for me because it's just it's a level of stupid I have a hard time dealing with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't I don't really engage, and it's funny because like I'll get in. If you look at my feed, it's I'll make a statement and then someone will just lash a, a piece of it and I'll go, well, if, let me take a step back. And I actually am like super kind and cordial and either they stop engaging or they just keep doing their thing. And I just like after three and they go, I'm just like, I let it go. Yeah. It's, like you can't take it personally. You just have to. But but I do try to engage because I've had like, hey, come back to something where something came up. It's like, hey, I know we, we were on opposite ends of this, but I just want to share this, you know, yeah. and. People, if you come to that with that, I think people are much more receptive. But obviously, to your point, like the trolls and the algorithm, everything's pushing us in directions to, you know, negativity, I guess, right? Yeah, and struggle to find the the people that are really open uh, to – it's almost as if um, a lot of people have chosen their their sides. At least that's what it seems on, on Twitter or on X. But to your point, I think the algorithm kind of drives that. Like you, people get things reflected back to them that they like and, you know, troll comes in and then it starts a fight. But it's like, where where are the people that are just going to be fair and open and balanced, have an open mind? And and I, I would like to reach those people, uh, but it's hard to find them on X. It's hard to find them anywhere. <laughs> What's been it is, yeah. I'd like to think that I'm one of those people, but I think we are starting to see a little bit of that. And to your point is like how we got connected was through that group that that got set up. And I would even argue that I'm I'm bold in my liberty and my independence, but you won't hear me shout it the way some people shout it, if that makes sense. It's not it doesn't make it non-existent. It just it's not the place to start the conversation. Right. I think it might grow to that or build to that, but I think if you start there, it's almost like that's the door already slammed in your face. Like yeah. it's like knocking on the door. Hi, I'm I'm here to talk about you know 
this strange spaghetti monster that came out of whatever this are you going to answer the door no you're not going to answer the door you're going to close the door in their face so you got to start with something like hey what do we agree on yeah or, you know and then maybe go to like okay well what's something that that you kind of think i think a little differently than you and then you get further and further from there you know but it's hard because we literally go to like i take my stand and i am putting my flag on this mountain and now it's capture the mountain right yeah that's literally what it becomes yeah absolutely yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a divide in in conquer strategy by by the elites. And and a cast I did a while back on, uh, I think it was on unrestricted and fifth generation warfare. And I found some NATO stuff online, and they're talking about how using social media to polarize and make people angry at each other to push an agenda, to push another agenda. And it's just, it's it's crazy. I have no doubt about it, though that these people in NATO and CIA and these different alphabet agencies, like they are sitting back thinking about what's the best way to go about this psychological warfare, make people angry, make them fighting each other, you know, create animosity. Uh, It's just, I think that's definitely going on. And you see a lot of that crap with the whole Ukraine thing. I mean, that is a total just disaster of what's going on over there. None of it was necessary. None of it needed to happen. Uh, it just, if there were adults in the room going back to, uh, the Minsk court and, and some of Russia's concerns, if they had just done what they did in the past and just negotiated and been, been adults and diplomats, I think the whole thing could have been averted, but that makes you think, why is there all this crazy stuff going on? There's clearly a group of people that want this chaos. Like you were talking about earlier. I mean, do they, do they want these wars to create depopulate and what's really wild is i i didn't read kyle schwab or whoever whichever globalist said this but they actually talk about oh we're going to have a lot of proxy wars we're going to have limited war because that's going to bring down population and it's like it's really sick but some of these people think that way and then you see you look at all the things going on geopolitically and we can we can go into geopolitics a little bit if you want. It's interesting, but it does seem like this stuff is getting off the rails. Like where was the where was the negotiation process going on with Russia and the West? And you know why after the dissolution of the USSR did did NATO have to expand all the way up to Russia's doorstep? Like it's just NATO it's, was a defensive organization, right? It originally. did not need to expand. Ninety one. Yeah. Okay, so. It's interesting we go through that because I, I actually had Scott Horton on a podcast. I was I was fortunate. He was very kind and gave me an hour of his time. I mean, that's an amazing mind to talk to about this stuff. But basically, all the way back to World War One, we kicked them down while they were down. That created World War Two. So after World War Two, we're like, let's use Reconstruction, right? So we thought that would be a good policy. Well, after Soviet Union, we went back to kind of World War One, kick them while they're down policy, and kept cre- mm-hmm. infringing and infringing. I'm sorry, but we have the Monroe Doctrine. How come we can't apply the Monroe Doctrine across on the other side of the hemisphere? Why should we? Just like we should have get the heck out of our backyard, we should be like we will also stay out of yours. Like yeah. it, it, it's like. How dare I? And once again, I love America. I am, I am, I'm so blessed to be here. But it's up for for you know constructive criticism. At this point, how can we not? How can we say not in our backyard, but we'll be in yours? It, yeah, it's a double standard, and, and that's exposed. It's been, it's over. Like, yeah, 
hundred percent. Well, it's not going well over there. I mean, no. My view, NATO's NATO's going to lose. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, this is a growth interesting, and that's actually going to embolden people's losing that and foolishly entering it in the first place. It's just completely unprepared for it. But to your point about the social media, uh, I don't know if you follow like Mike Ben Cyber on uh, on on X. He's a guy to follow. But basically, the CIA and the deep state made the internet free so that they could do these coups in foreign countries. Oh wow. And now it's coming, the, 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 the hens have come home to roost because we are using it as Americans to expose the deep state. And now they want to implement censorship. Yeah. So you see how they use the well, freedom <laughs> to allow the voices of dissent so they could have the regime changes yeah. in the Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah. This, it's so uh, crazy. And then, like, it's just like, oh, like, the, it just all lines up. That totally makes sense. So yeah. now that the CIA had used the, the freedom of speech to destabilize the non-freedom countries, because we want to get our people in there, now it's actually hurting them because we are exposing them with our freedom of speech because we have information that they're like, we don't want you guys to know that. That's right. So that's why, they're expo- that's why they're censoring everything now. Yeah, and information is much more accessible now than it ever was yeah. before. I mean, back in the day, you had to go in the library, dig through books and all that. And, you know, you got the Internet now that has changed things. Social media has changed things. And I think Web3, blockchain, I think that's even going to continue. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm, to go back in time, Walter Cronkite was the the news. Like, OK, mm-hmm. was that the news or the state news? Right. Like, was their news. it's yep. clearly Fox, CNN, all these places are state. They're, I mean, the stuff we hear on Twitter is days in advance of any yeah. news broadcast. I literally, it's funny because, like, I, I love my parents. My mom, you know, she does listen to everything, but she's like a Fox person, okay? She's oh, yeah. she's 80. She just turned 80. Happy birthday, mom. But and it's like she's a Fox person. So I'll call her and go, did you hear about the Senate hearing room? And it's, she's like, what no. Senate hearing room? I'm like, yeah, it's been on for like two days. I figured I'd wait two days before I even asked you because it happened over that weekend. No one talked about it till like Monday or Tuesday even. And you're yeah. like, well, they had to get it, what, check through the channels of whether they can even like announce it. You know what I mean? It's like it's gotten that bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've also noticed, too, there's big generational differences. My parents, they're boomers and they they listen. I mean, they're more Fox News, but. Whether it's Fox News, CNN, that's all curated information. That's curated news, uh, top down, disseminated. What you know, you see, they see what you see, what they want you to see. I agree with you. Twitter, social media is faster. Uh, I only recently started doing the X thing, and that was mainly because it's like, all right, my Rumble is just, it's it's just so quiet there. I got to at least get on X or something. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The the news cycle moves so fast now, and it's a generational thing though. Where I think X and younger millennials, and now even whatever they call the youngest generation, um, they they like all that stuff. They're online, they're on social media. They don't even watch legacy news. They probably think it's boring as as, as hell. But I go home or go go to my parents' house, and they've got Fox News on like all the time, twenty four seven. Like just yep. feeds right into their their brain or something. <laughs> and the, it's and funny. They, I heard an executive at, in one of the boardrooms say something like, "They're too old to change the channel." <laughs> like they literally said that about their audience, and it's like, 
you're <laughs> okay. How about the off channel? How about just off? Right. <laughs> yeah. The off channel. Oh my God. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they do, they have it going on in the background and they just, you know, it's something, it's something with that uh, boomer generation. They just like that. They just grew up with that. Um, but, uh, yeah. Oh man, we didn't get a chance to, I guess it's already been an hour, but we didn't get a chance to, uh, dig into some of the details of the climate stuff, but we can always do it. We can keep going or we can always do it again another time. It's up totally. Yeah, up to I, I've had four and a half hour podcasts, my friend, I can talk forever. So it's like, if you want to, if you want to dig into it, we could do that. We could talk about anything you want. We could call it a day and, and revisit another day. Look, it's the first time we've ever met. I feel like, uh, it's like a strange, you know, stranger, just a friend I haven't met yet. So I'm glad we got, got to connect today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it was, I think it's great. And, uh, you know, this, this is what I want to do. I want to come on as a guest on, you know, people can ask me about my expertise. I mean, I don't mind getting into anything like you. I love talking about this stuff. It's, it's super interesting. I'm not a geopolitical, you know, analyst or expert by any means, but I do, I do watch a lot of stuff. I watch the Duran. I watch, uh, Alexander Mercosi. I watch a lot of those guys. I watch the situation, what's going on there in Ukraine. I follow it. That's not my expertise. My expertise is more in the you know, paleoclimate, geologic stuff that, you know, calling out that BS. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I love getting into the other stuff. Uh, I mean, it's a crazy world we live in right now. And uh, I do think we're going through a, uh, a fourth turning. Have you, you heard about yeah. this? The, the yeah, I've, I've, I was, start, I was listening to Neil House book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar yeah. with the, the book? The fourth turning is here. I've, I've heard of the book. I haven't, I haven't read it. But yeah, Neil Howe, H O W E. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I also listen to, I listen to Peter's eye hands. The end of the world is just the beginning. You want to end up not sleeping at night or like sharpening razor blades. You listen to that book. <laughs> listen to that guy. Just like, it doesn't end well for anyone. Like ultimately, I mean, we're, we come out, I mean, we come, look, we, America as just a land has resources has yep. natural barriers and has the most guns of anyone in the in the world and you don't know where they are we shouldn't have to be imperialistic and be sticking our nose in other people's business there, there's no way you're coming to us right there's, it's i mean obviously outside of like a nuclear type thing we're talking we're talking as a conventional taking over type thing that's not that's just not happening yeah so what the heck are like and i'm and it's like i just got i grew up the whole thing just being anti-communist because of my mom and and obviously anti-fascist so but we had to be war western because that fought fascism and communism and it's like well you're just doing the same thing it's not like it's really the same ideology it's just a different side of it that's right have you ever uh followed or listened to a guy named Jay Dyer. You ever heard of him? No, no. Jay no, Dyer is no. really interesting. Uh, I think he's like a PhD uh, philosopher, uh, but he, he wrote the book Isoteric Hollywood and maybe another one, but uh, he gets into the occult, but he's also uh, does the geopolitics and he, he gets really deep into communist versus capitalism and that whole history and how he talks about how it's kind of, the whole thing is process oriented to get to uh, a later synthesis. So you probably heard the term um, problem, reaction, solution, or thesis, antithesis, synthesis, uh, the Hegelian, Hegelian dialectic. He talks a lot about that. So he's yeah. like, 
know, people on the right get really twisted off and angry and people on the left get really angry. And he, he basically says, that's what, that's what they want. This is the plan. They're trying to have everybody at their throats, destroy confidence in our institutions, our government, tear it all down because they're, they're going to bring in the new thing, which is going to be a synthesis of something, something else. And that's the technocratic, uh, uh, future and and you know the other people like Alex Jones and other people talk about the new world order technocracy but that is Jay Dyer describes it in those terms and it starts to make a little bit of sense because it's like man they they really are trying to amp up to fight this side and try to polarize these opposites as much as possible and get them to go at each other and then the people but, the but, but it's not just that they're doing the opposite what are they focusing on it's culture shit that really yeah. ultimately, besides affecting women and children, like trans women beating up regular women or children being mutilated, outside of that scope, it doesn't matter. It And yet, that's the one that they go to, right? They go to these low-hanging fruit ones that we just get all enraged about because we see oh, yeah. from, it's, it's Oh, my rage. gosh, you dyed your hair pink. Oh my God! Yeah, it's oh big, no, big. it's the end of the world. You got a tattoo. Remember? I mean, I remember when tattoos were like a huge thing, and you know, oh, yeah. like so. Anyway, it's just like always a culture thing. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Well, he talks about that too. He he talks about how a lot of the stuff we see coming out of Hollywood, coming out of news media, the culture. His basic point is this is not organic. He says this this is the elites. This is the globalist cabal, whatever you want to call them. They are pushing the culture and the stuff that comes out of Hollywood and what comes out of the movies. And the whole point is to degrade and change the culture, to d destroy it so they can bring in their new system. And that's where he starts talking about the smart cities. He, call, he calls them coon pods. I love that term, coon pods. You will live in your 200 square foot apartment. <laughs> and he eats the bugs, right? Uh, right, so he's about <laughs> you know nothing and you will like it, you'll be happy. Yeah, yeah you got a good right. Schwab, uh, impersonation. Well, I'm German, man. I can totally actually, <laughs> you know, what's really sad about OS is I've got one of the most phenomenal Robert Kennedy impersonations, but I can't do it. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like it's a vax injury. It's like, am I making fun of an like a dislike? Am I making yeah. fun of him or? But it's like I've nailed it. Like it sounds like you're starting a car. Like it's really, really? interesting when he talks. But, uh, I don't want to do. I'm not going to do it, man. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I've actually it's, wondered uh, what is. Did he have something with his throat, or did he have something? That, he did. He had a vax injury, actually. Oh, that's vax, what, okay. That caused the voice. Yeah, though. that that's. I'm not saying. I don't know if that's the one that actually got him initially started. I think he was like vax injured like later in life or something because it changed his voice, and then he had surgery to make it a little better. But obviously it's strained and I'm not trying to make fun of the guy. It's just like everyone makes fun of Trump's voice. It's like, I've got a great RFK, man. I just can't use it because I feel like it would be mean. Yeah, that, that one is where it's like some people might interpret that as yeah, I'm not a handicap or something. <laughs> I, I, well, I know it's really interesting, right? Like, but it's it's funny because it's like Trump's has a weird timber that everyone seems to make fun of. And Biden clearly has lost some marbles and they clearly okay. have you ever seen kyle dunnigan's joe biden it is probably the funniest oh, I see that yeah his is pretty good oh my gosh it is probably the funniest little thing where he oh does like God, the face over thing uh it's the guy it's that does trump though whatever he's a young guy whatever his sean name is sean farash is that uh, you're talking about sean it is so good 
it's he's got his own podcast, right? You're talking about Sean Farage, right? Farage probably is him. Yeah. Like you, you, yeah. you don't look at the screen and you think it's Trump. It's that good. It's right. it's amazing. It's uncanny. Yeah, he's dark hair, like goatee, like a beard, right? Yeah, dark hair. yeah, dark. Hair. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty wild. Uh, it's pretty crazy. I mean, Sean, Shane Gillis does a great Trump because he's. It's like he's just got the mannerism. Once you get that timber down, you know, it's great. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So hey, I've had a I've had a great time talking, Wes. Like I said, we probably could talk for hours and hours. So we'll we'll probably schedule another conversation down yeah. the road here. But yeah, let's let's do it again. Yeah, for sure. Th- thanks, and, uh, thanks so much for connecting, man. Tell tell us everything. How we how can we get a hold of you? Where can we find you on all your socials and all your websites and everything? Oh, okay, sure. So for right now, I've just got the X. I'm Carbon Cow on uh, X, and then um, on uh, Rumble, I'm Carbon Psyops, and then Carbon Cow is on there. He's a little cartoon, but uh, I'm going to keep going with carbon psyops and uh, we'll, we'll probably get a website at some point. And, and then what I'm going to do with the website is I want to put all the papers and scientific literature because I have tons of it. I mean, I have all this stuff that shows that, you know, the climate was warmer in the medieval warm period. There's a lot of evidence for it. There's mountains of academic peer papers for all this stuff, pa- papers that show that CO2 was much higher in the geologic time scale, all this stuff. So I want to have that as a resource where if people want to go, and see it and reference it and look at the figures it's there um so i'll have a website at some point um uh, right now we're still building it it's locked but it's probably just going to be carbon psyops or something like that so but that's it x carbon cow and uh carbon psyops on on rumble and uh and i'm happy to be, be a guest on other uh other shows when and i'd love to come back and we can we can dig more into the weeds on the the climate stuff too that sounds very interesting to me. I want to try to play a little catch up because it's like drinking from a fire hose, man. Like my, my my infinite curiosity has me. I work remotely now and I haven't really stepped foot in my office in a couple of years, to be honest. And I'll put on three or four things at one time. So I'll have like a podcast, uh, YouTube, a rumble and something else. And then if I hear something on one of them, I'll like stop the other three. And I'll kind of like it's kind of like I have because there's so much out there to absorb. Yeah, so much there- information. Yeah, because yeah, like I, I love music, and it's like you could never listen to every song ever made. There's you don't have enough time, and it's it's like heartbreaking when they like you think like that. There's just so much. Like, what's you're, that? You're a musician, right? Like you did your voice. I, 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 I sing. Yeah, I used to sing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a musician. Yeah. Oh, are you? I, what What do you do? I do. Uh, years ago, I did a little banjo. Now I'm more mandolin and and fiddle, and I do oh, like. Oh, that's uh, amazing. I do like Appalachian music, like old time fiddle stuff. I need to catch you in in, uh, in touch with my buddy who's like, he's gotten into gongs now, but he's huge into bluegrass and country. I should have worn my CBGB shirt. I had it on uh, yesterday's podcast. So nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I'm not a musician. I want to be clear. I just sang. It, it's a totally different thing. You, you are a musician if you play an instrument. Singing is... It's a different. It's not the same thing. It's not the same. Oh, thing. you can use your voice as an instrument. Uh, what's the? I, I appreciate. <laughs> so, well, so if you guys. if you listen to the end of my podcast, that is me doing a three piece harmony of the Good Night Sweetheart. If you heard the end of that, uh, okay. So, if you happen to listen to one of the podcasts at the end, is just me singing Good Night Sweetheart. It's a three piece harmony. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, I did catch that. Yeah, yeah. That's me. That is me doing all three parts. So, cool. You're welcome. No. Anyway, so yeah. Dr. Ingram, very yeah. nice to meet you, Wes. Uh, it's great to connect. So glad we got to do this. It's like I said, it's like a, it's like a friend I haven't met yet. And I'm so glad we got to connect today. And if there's anything else, any final thoughts, any 
words of wisdom for our audience or for your audience? Oh no, I think we're good. We went we went long enough, but let's uh, yeah, let's just definitely do it again. I'd love to I'd love to get into the uh, geologic record part, the deep time climate. We didn't get a chance to get into the deep time, but it goes back millions of years. There's so many cool, interesting things that have happened in Earth's history, and and it's a really cool story unto itself. All right, man. Well, well, let's do it again, Wes. I'm gonna hit stop here and then uh, stay on though, okay? And we'll we'll talk a little bit. Sure. Take care, man. Thank you All so right. much for joining. Not conscious. Have a great day. Yeah, man. See it. Take care. Take care. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really must say good night.